We will finish our last sermon concerning this passage today. Next week, we begin, and I hope that you would be back, and I'd hope that you would uh, find somebody that hasn't been here in a while, call them up, tell them that Pastor Andy is going to make everyone mad next week, and that you would come and you would hear the beginning of the exposition of the Olivet Discourse, which basically means that's chapter 24. Actually, it's more than that, but it's Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. It's his description about what was going to take place. And folks, I am going to challenge you and all your traditional teachings, which is about 95% of you, I'm going to challenge you, first of all, to study. And I'm going to challenge your belief system concerning what you think you is biblical, which may not be. Okay? Uh, I am going to also challenge you to maintain your composure uh, in this. Okay? Is because my viewpoints are going to come at a different slant and a different angle than probably yours, but it's one of those secondary issues, probably a third issue in the life of a Christian. Primary issues, basically, as you understand, is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, us understanding that we only get to heaven through Him. We understand that there is a trinity. We have those basic primary things. Dividing over eschatology is not something we Christians ought to do. We'll have different camps, and we have different beliefs, but it's not necessarily something to be divided over, but can be vigorously debated, yes. But there are those in the camps, in different camps, who call what I am going to say to you as heresy. And uh, I will say to them, shame on them, because I don't call what they believe is heresy. I just don't think it's right, uh, according to biblical interpretation. So we're going to look at that. Now, it's going to be different. I'm going to be showing you some slide present, uh, slides that I've put together. And we have to do, first of all, a historical account of what is happening in this Arena. We're going to t look at some slides, gives you the definition of the different millennial viewpoints. We're going to look at the history of where did this main, this main uh, teaching that has grasped hold of the church in the last 150 years, where did it come from? Because I guarantee you folks, it was never heard of before 18, the 1800s. It was never preached, it was never taught, uh, that there was a secret rapture of the church. It was never taught. It was never there. And so premillennialism was, but a dispensational premillennialism was not until 150 years ago. But what I'm going to preach to you and to teach to you, folks, understand this, it's not as thrilling. It's not as enthralling, you know, as the dispensational viewpoint, which looks at the newspaper and then tries to find things to match it in the Scripture to say these things have been fulfilled. Because if you look at it, that's been going on for years. Even this week, I get a video text from my son and says, tell me what you think of this. And here's a guy sitting in a, 
in a truck and he's blasting this this out to all his people. He says, you've heard me in biblical, biblical prophecies and you've heard me in biblical prophecy conferences, but I'm going to tell you something today that's just going to blow you away. And he says, it's unbelievable about what is going to happen from my sources and he never gave his sources, from his sources that he has, that on Tuesday and Wednesday of last week, we should have been in martial law. That's what it said. And it fulfilled all these different biblical prophecies. Wednesday's past. Are we in martial law? No. No. We're not there. And that's the some kind of things that just get people all riled up and all hyped up and everything else. Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. And it's all crazy things. In fact, I found in my library a book that says 88 reasons that Jesus is coming back in 1988. And it was published in 1987. Okay? Folks, literally, the church I was pastoring, I had people take off the week before. So they could be with their families and go up to heaven in the rapture the week that this man said that the rapture was going to happen. That was 1988. Okay? So I'm going to try to help you think through it. Now you can come to your own conclusion. And, uh, but it's going to be a, a long study. It's not going to be something that's just going to be a week or two. It's going to be a long study because we're going to look at some of the Old Testament. We're going to look at the New Testament. We're going to look at some of Revelation. And look and see what it says and what it doesn't say. So I hope that you would come back and be a part of that. And uh, as we begin that study this next week, you know, invite your friends. Because, you know, they need to, their throwing arm needs to be exercised, you know, as they throw tomatoes at me and those kind of things. So if you do that, that would be great. Psalm 37 is where I want you to turn your attention now, if you would. A bandit from Mexico made a specialty, dear folks, of crossing the Rio Grande from time to time, and he would rob banks in Texas. And the banks offered a reward for his capture. Dead or alive, they offered a much larger reward for the recovery, though, of the stolen funds. So they call an enterprising Texas Ranger. Let's just call him Walker, Texas Ranger, okay? They decided to track him down. And so after a long, difficult search, he traced the bandit to his hometown. And on a hunch, he checked the town's cantina. And sure enough, there was sitting the bandit. The only other people in the bar were the bartender and a scrawny older man at the back table. So the time was right for him to make his move. He burst through the door, pulls his revolver and says, you're under arrest. He says, I get a reward for you, dead or alive. Tell me where the money is and I will let you live. If you don't, I will shoot you dead right here and save myself some trouble. The bandit did not speak English. The ranger did not speak Spanish. And it turned out that the scrawny man at the back of the room happened to be a lawyer who was bilingual. He knew the robber. So he immediately said, hey, look, look, let me, let me translate for you, please, for the both of you. So the ranger said, tell him, if he doesn't tell me where the loot is, I will shoot him here and now. So he translated, and upon the hearing what the ranger said and seeing that cold look in Tech Walker, Texas Ranger's eyes, the bandit knew he 
minute. So, terrified, the bandit blurted out in Spanish that the loot was buried in an old barn at the outskirts of town. The ranger said, what did he say? And the lawyer said, he says, you don't have the nerve to shoot me, Yankee swine. (laughs) Folks, everybody's looking for a reward, aren't they? (laughs) Aren't they? It's all in us. We want rewards, do we not? We want them. We really do. If you don't think so, how many of you have credit cards that get reward points? I've got one. I get airline points, those kind of things. How many of you go to restaurants, and when you give them your phone number, guess what you're going to get? Reward points, right? So you can get stuff free. Listen, I was in the La Madeline the other day. They gave me the receipt that says, if you'll fill this out online, you will get a coupon code and rewarded for a free pastry. And I filled it out, and I don't even eat pastries. Why did I do it? Because I wanted a reward. That's just it, okay? Where does that come from? Where does the desire for this reward thing come from? Why are we motivated by incentives? Why does that happen? Well, folks, I think it's something that comes from the heart of God, okay? It's a method that he created and instituted to motivate us because if you look at Hebrews 11, we're going to look at some passages before we get into Psalm 37 just real quickly. It says in Hebrews 11, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You see, Moses was motivated by a reward. Paul states in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain the prize. You see, he is saying that we're going to receive an imperishable wreath at the end of life. So he says, run to gain a prize. That's a reward. That's an incentive. The apostles motivated us with rewards. James tells us that there's a crown of life for those who are faithful under trial. So if you're experiencing trials because of what God is doing in your life to grow you and to move you towards maturity, the Bible says you're going to be rewarded in heaven with a crown of life. Paul tells us there's a crown of rejoicing for those who evangelize and those who disciple others in Christ. You get a crown of rejoicing when you get to heaven. That's a crown. There's a crown of righteousness and a crown of glory. The righteous, uh, righteousness, basically, it's for purifying oneself and readying oneself to meet Christ at his return. And then the crown of glory is those who have the role of spiritual leadership and leading churches and giving that kind of leadership. You get this crown of glory. There are crowns to be had, and God motivates us with those kind of rewards. Rewards. Jesus gives us incentives to obey him and to follow him. Luke 14 tells us that if we do a righteous act and people do not repay us, it says we're going to be repaid in heaven. He tells us in the Beatitudes that by becoming his disciples and following him through our actions, through our character, it gives us a list of things. He says we're going to receive the kingdom of heaven. We're going to inherit the earth. 
It says if we hunger and thirst after him, we're going to be satisfied. That's a reward. It says if we're pure in heart, we're going to see God. It says if we go through persecution, we're going to have great reward. If we're merciful, we receive mercy, and on and on and on. Jesus Christ sought to motivate us to do good works by the promise of rewards. And in Hebrews, if we went back to it in chapter 12, Jesus even endured the cross, according to Hebrews, for the joy set before him. So to be rewarded is proper motivation for Christian obedience. Now, that's where some people get confused, however. Some will say we should not be motivated by rewards, just be obedient out of joy. Well, here's what Tim Challies, pastor and, and author, has to say about that. It says, if we maintain that it is wrong to be motivated by rewards, we bring an accusation against Christ himself, suggesting that he was wrongly motivated for offering us rewards. We will say that Christ is wrongly tempting us when he holds out a reward for our obedience. So we should not, we should not be guilty of saying, well, we should just do it because we just love Jesus. Well, here's the point. We should be doing it because we love Jesus, but there's also rewards that Christ has said you can have for doing these kind of things. And so but being motivated by those things is not improper, in other words. And that's what Psalm 37 tells us. And this is the last. We talked about the commands for Christians that we are to do according to him. We also talked about the wicked and the woes of the wicked last week. Now we talk about the rewards of the righteous. Now, in the Old Testament, understand what righteousness meant. Let me give you a definition of what it means. Beeson Divinity's professor of the Old Testament in Hebrew, Dr. Ross, puts it this way. The basic meaning of righteous has to do with conforming to a standard. In religious passages, that standard is divine revelation. So when David is writing and says, this is who the righteous are, this is what the righteous do, he's talking about conforming to the law, conforming to what has been written in the law concerning people. The righteous are people who have entered into, when they observe the law, they enter into covenant with God by faith and therefore are told that they are righteous. They seek to live according to his word. God knows them, and because God knows them, it says they shall never perish, and therefore we have these righteous standards before us that we can do because we are walking in righteousness. So the righteous are those who are motivated to fulfill divine revelation. And by doing so, they will be rewarded for doing so. Now, they have done unrighteous things, but they find forgiveness in God. So, what, are the, what do the righteous do? Let's just go right through this again just to get it into your mind. And then we'll see the rewards that we receive. The righteous do. Look at verse 3. They trust in the Lord. What else do they do? They do good. Trust in the Lord, do good. That's what it says. It says, verse 4, they delight themselves in the Lord. Now, what is delight? When I say, how do you delight in the Lord? What does that mean? 
It means admiring him above everything else, that you admire what God is, who God is, what he has done. That is a delight. You concentrate on God. Folks, understand, this book that we read is not about ourselves. It's about God and his activity in the lives of people. Therefore, we are to have our minds set on things above and the things of God and who God is and what God does. We are to glorify him in everything. We're to admire him. That is delighting in God. It's also being in awe of God in all that he does. Folks, if you've never taken a trip to the Grand Canyon, please go to the Grand Canyon and see the Grand Canyon. When you step out on that rim and you look at that vastness of that canyon, I guarantee you, you're not there as John Piper says, no one visits the Grand Canyon to improve their self-esteem. You're not there at the Grand Canyon going, wow, I am lovely, I am beautiful, I am worthwhile. You're not there, you're taken back by the all and the beauty of this creation that God created. And if you're a Christian, you cannot help but say, glory to God that he made every bit of this. This is awesome. That's delighting in God, being in awe of God, admiring God. It's finding your fulfillment and your peace and your joy in him. In the presence of the Lord, it says in the Bible, there is fullness of joy. That's what it means to delight yourself in God. As we move on, verse 5, the righteous commit themselves to God. They are still before him. If you look at verse 7 there, but still before the Lord and they wait for him. Verse 8, they refrain from anger. They refrain from wrath. Verse 11, they act in meekness. Verse 21 and 28. Look at verse 21. Listen to what it says. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. That's the quality of the righteous. They're generous. They are giving people. That's what they are. Verse 37 says that they are blameless. Mark the blameless. Behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. They walk blamelessly. They walk uprightly among people. That's what they do. But what are the rewards? We want to go back and look at what the rewards are for doing those things. Go back to verse 3 and 4. Trust in the Lord, do good. Dwell in the land, be friend, faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And what's the reward? He will give you the desires of your heart. Understand something. The reward is your desires will be granted. Understand, please. You may desire an F-250. You may desire a Cadillac. You may desire all those kinds of things, but when your delight is in the Lord, your delight is in those things, your desires will be those things that honor him. Just because you use this verse and pull it out and say, look, God's going to prosper me. He's going to give me all these little things. That's not what this verse is about. Because when we begin to start delighting in God, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with having an F-250, in case y'all want to buy me one. That's not a problem, okay? The point is, is that we shouldn't use this verse to justify getting a 250. What we should be able to say is, 
I've delighted in the Lord God so much that my desires are his desires. I desire what is going to honor him. I want righteousness. I want it to flourish. I want people to walk in the love of Jesus Christ. I want people to grow and walk in truth. See, those are the same desires that God has. And the reason I want those things is because I delight in what God has said, and I see what he says in his word that he wants, so therefore I want those same things. You get it? That's delighting yourself in God. The reward is your desires are going to be granted as they honor him. Those are some of the rewards that you get. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. The reward that it's speaking here is that your righteousness will be vindicated. Folks, there are times when I know that you have done things in righteousness and you have received persecution for it. You have received ridicule for those very things. When it says your righteousness shall shine forth, this means that your righteousness for a while, your righteous act has been darkened by the attitudes and opinions and the words of other people. And it seems that you're not right. And they're making fun of you and saying that you're stupid, you're dumb, you're crazy. That's not righteous at all. This is what it is. In due time, as you delight yourself in the Lord, you commit to him, you trust in him. Guess what's going to happen? It's going to come forth. It's going to come forth and it's going to come back and they're going to say, you know, they were right. It will be vindicated. That's what that verse means. So the reward is your righteousness will be vindicated. Look at verse 23, if you would. The next reward. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he shall fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. In other words, here's your reward. The righteous will be led by the Lord. It's the reason that David was able to write, the Lord is, what? My shepherd, I shall not want. He does what? He leads me, right? Besides cool waters, still waters. You've got it. You see, they're going to be led by the Lord. So if you are walking righteously, your steps are going to be directed by the Lord. The Lord will also sustain you. That's what verse 24 says. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. In other words, the Lord holds you. You may bow and you may be broken, but you are never, you may be, put it this way, on your knees, but your face is not in the dirt. Even though you fall headlong, you're still going to get up. Why? Because the Lord holds you up. Folks, think about the biblical characters. Think about Joseph. What did he get? Think about Joseph. He gets thrown down in a hole. He gets taken off. He gets sold. He goes and he is in prison for two years. But then what did the Lord do to vindicate his righteousness, to be led by the Lord in all those circumstances? And then what happens to Joseph? He becomes the ruler over this kingdom, then takes in his brothers and his father and blesses them. He is second to Pharaoh. This is what God does. They may look like they're fallen. God lifts them up. Think about Job 
Everything was destroyed in Job's life, but then he was giving it back at the end of his life. Think about Jonah. He went fishing, got swallowed. But what happened? Got spit up. The Lord sustained him so he could go preach to the Ninevites. The Lord sustains the righteous. Verse 25 and 26, the Lord provides for them. This is a great verse. I love this verse. Now listen, this psalm was written by King David when he was old. How do we know that? Because you find it, here's a principle of biblical interpretation. You're gonna need this for next week and the weeks following, that you let the scripture speak in context and find out what the scripture says in its context. I have been young and now I am what? old. So do we conclude that David wrote this when he was young? No, never. It says, I'm old. That's what it says. I am old. But look, listen, I have never seen the righteous forsaken. You may feel like it, but it's not happening. You're not forsaken. God is with you. We just talked about this. Your righteousness will be vindicated. You're going to be led by the Lord. You're going to be sustained by him. And you are going to be provided for him. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And then what does righteous, what's happening? It says, he is ever lending generously. That's the quality of the righteous. And his children become a blessing. His children become a blessing. That's great. That's a great inheritance. That's a great heritage that your children are going to do. But here's the point. The Lord always provides. Now, I could probably ask each and every one of you, have you been in a place to where you just saw the provision of God when you were absolutely destitute and God just came through? I know that you have. And so, oftentimes, we have to go back and remember those kind of things of what God has done. It's absolutely amazing. What God has done. I I, I think I could write a book, folks, about the provision that God has given to Brenda and I, especially first in our marriage. Did you know that the ring that she wears that I gave her over 42 years ago was provided by the Lord? When I was a youth minister, when I met her at the church that I was serving, no, she wasn't one of my youth. I wasn't one of those kind of guys, okay? She was in college, okay? <clears throat> she wasn't, I was, wasn't over that <clears throat> area. Met her. When I met her and after our first, four days after our first date, I told this young lady that I was going to marry her. Totally freaked her out, okay? Absolutely freaked her out. And uh, so we ended up getting, you know, I, I proposed. And when I proposed, I did not have a ring. I didn't. A ring. How are you going to get a ring? I don't know. And uh, so my pastor came in one day and he said, uh, did you give her a ring? I said, no. And I, he said, uh, well, you going to give her a ring? I said, I don't know. I said, I don't have the money. And I didn't. I didn't have the money. I was finishing up school at Houston Baptist. I was trying to make my ends meet. I had car payments. I had rent. I had all kinds of stuff going on in my life. I didn't have it. I knew that I could go make a down payment on one. I had enough money to do that. So I put down 150 bucks for a down payment, okay? So about a week later, I came in my office, and there was this big, huge envelope, 
and I never said anything about going to get Brenda a ring. I had this big, huge envelope that had all this money in it, over 900 and something dollars. You see this ring? I can't tell you the, what it did, but I'll tell you that you, you'll figure this out because I'm not good at math. So I had this 150 bucks. I had this 900 and something bucks, and I went and put it all on that ring, and I said, how much more do I owe so I can get this out and give this to my fiance? <clears throat> she said, you need 154 bucks. Hmm. Now, if you understood at the time, understood at the time, my paycheck was part-time. That's all I had. So my bills totaled $46 more than what I was getting paid. That's just bills. And so I was broke, let's put it that way. I was broke. I'd have to ask my money, my parents for money here and there. But I was determined, Lord, you already provided this 900 something dollars. I pray that you provide this again. And then I thought in my ADD-ness, you know what? I opened a checking account over in Bel Air at this bank when I was at Houston Baptist I said, let me get that out. And I looked it out, and I had 54 bucks, $54. That's what I put down, $54. I said, well, I can go withdraw that, and I can pay off that ring and get it and get it to her. And I just started praying, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to get the other money, but you just make that happen. So when I went over to withdraw, <laughs> I made a mistake in my calculation. I had $154. What did I owe? $154. So I immediately took it out, went back and paid it off, got that ring, put it on her, and, and went into her mother, uh, their mother and dad's house where she was living. I put that ring, you know, on her, by her phone, went into the other place and called her phone, went into the kitchen and called her phone so she could go back and find her ring, you know. So that's how God provided. And I can begin to... You know, and I still don't know where this 900-something dollar money, I have a clue, I think. I don't know. I don't know if the pastor went to people and said, hey, he needs a ring, let's give him some money. I don't know. All I know is God provided. And that's the what God does for the righteous. He provides for them. Verse 27 and 28, we go on. He preserves and he's a protector of them. Listen to what it says. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. The Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Notice what he does. He's their preserver. He is their protector. That's exactly what First Peter says. It says you are given an inheritance and you are preserved. You are kept and you're preserved for all time. That's what the righteous does. You have a great inheritance, verse 29. The righteous shall inherit the land. We have a, an inheritance. What is the land now? It's, you're looking at it from a spiritual perspective. It's the kingdom of God. Did you inherit the kingdom of God when you received the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, you did. The kingdom of God dwells in you. You are the kingdom. So therefore, that's the great inheritance that you have. Verse 30 and 31, it says that the righteous reward are rewarded that you are taught by God. You are taught by God. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. Why? Because the law of God, verse 31, is in his heart. You see, we learn and are taught through the word. We don't need any special revelation. 
We don't need anybody sitting in a truck telling us about biblical prophecy that's going to happen on sources that they've had. We have a source. That source is the Word of God. And when you go into the Word of God, you will be taught by God because these are the words that God is teaching. Nothing else. This is it. The Word of God. So be careful. Be careful when you hear preachers or teachers or anybody else says, I've got a word from God from you, and it has nothing to do with this one. Be careful with that because you are going to be taught by God. Verse 33, it says, The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. That's what he's saying. You're going to be never abandoned by God. Never will you be abandoned. In fact, verse 34 tells you what's going to happen. Wait for the Lord and keep his ways and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will be exalted. You will be exalted. Now, when we get over to look at Revelation, guess what's going to happen in Revelation? The saints are going to be exalted and they are going to rule and they are going to reign. That's what the Bible says. So you're going to be exalted as you walk in righteousness. That's your reward. Verse 40 says this, you're going to experience deliverance. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. Verse 39, the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Folks, that's a lots of rewards. You're going to be delivered. You have some problems, there is deliverance in the Lord. You have some addictions, there is deliverance in the Lord. Folks, understand something. How is it that a person that has been an alcoholic and a drug addict all their life has seen some terrible things, some terrible things happen in their life, but when they come to know the Lord, those addictions are gone, and they begin to walk with the Lord. The reason is because when they receive the righteousness from Christ, that righteousness begins to deliver them from where they were. And you see it over and over and over again in the lives of people. You will see, you'll hear testimonies that I was this way and now I'm this way. I was under bondage to sin and addiction, but now I have been set free. Why? The Lord delivers the righteous. Folks, that is something that we need to understand. You will be delivered. You can be delivered from besetting sins, all kinds of things, if you walk in righteousness. That's what he's saying. He's giving us these rewards. Now, how is that possible? I want to just conclude with this. How is that possible? Everything that was just described in chapter 37, everything described in chapter 37 fits Jesus Christ to a T. When Jesus Christ came on this earth, he came to do what? To do the will of the Father. He was holy and righteous. And as he walked this earth, what did he do? He trusted. He committed. He waited. He was still before the Lord. He trusted in him. And what then happened with Jesus? All these rewards were in his life. 
And now if you are in Christ, as the Bible says, you are. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have received his righteousness. It clothes you. He lives in you. The Apostle Paul says, I am, what, crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, I live. Yet the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live because of Christ. And he says, what is the hope of our glory? What is the hope of our life? It's Jesus in us in Colossians. He also says in Colossians, your life now is hid with Christ. It's hid with Christ. So everything that you need for righteousness, you already have. It's already there. Because Jesus Christ is sharing his life with us. And because he received all these different rewards throughout his life. And then when he was exalted to the right hand of the Father, he shares them with us flowing out of his life into our life. And so therefore, the righteous life of Christ allows us to receive these rewards through our obedience to him because we want to be pleasing to him. So if we would appropriate the life of Christ that's living with us, when we say, well, Lord, I don't know if I can act this way. Yes, you can act that way because Jesus is in you to act that way. So that you can appropriate and say, Lord, let me live the life of righteousness that is yours. Let me live it out in my life. And when you do that, dear folks, you are going to experience the rewards, everything that we said in Psalm 37 and more throughout your life. In fact, they should be an aim. Because Paul even says, it is our aim to please Christ. That's our aim. And he says, everything that you should do, do all for the glory of God. That is basically walking in righteousness. So folks, understand this. Do you have what it takes to walk in righteousness? If you are a Christian, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Get rid of all that stuff that says like, you know, I'm just not going to be able to do anything like that because I'm an old, dirty, rotten sinner. Always been a dirty, rotten sinner. I'm going to continue to be a dirty, rotten sinner because I'm going to keep on living like this all my life. And hopefully I'll be released from my bondage when I go to heaven. No. You are righteous. The Bible says you are holy. The Bible says you are set apart. The Bible tells us that the life of Christ is in us. So can we live righteously? You better believe it. Believe what the word of God says. You are righteous. You are holy. You are set apart. You are separated. You are God's child. You are God's child. Act like it. And you receive these rewards. Now, folks, understand this. We are not all God's children. We are all created in the image of God. We are not all God's children. The only children of God are those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. We cannot say, oh, we're all children of God. No, we're all created in the image of God. We're not all His children. Only those who have received Christ. And if you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, you are not a child of God. The Bible seriously says this. You're either this or this. You're a sheep or you're a goat. Right? You're right or you're left. You're my child or Satan's child. That's what the Bible says. 
Folks, if you are here and you are not a child of God, you have not trusted in what Christ has done for you, can you be one? Yes, you can. It's abandoning your sin. It's repenting of your sin, acknowledging what Jesus has done for you on the cross. If you are without Christ, are you a sinner? Yes, you are. Yes, you are, and your sins have separated you from God. But God made a provision. He sent his son so that you could have eternal life. It's repenting of that, understanding and knowing, Lord, I've sinned against you. I repent, I turn, I trust in what Jesus has done. When you do that, you become a child of God. His righteousness is given to us and we are made clean and whole before him and then we can experience the rewards that God gives out as motivators for us to follow him. Would you trust Christ? If you haven't trusted Christ, do that today. Call on his name. Trust in him. Call out for righteousness. He will deliver you from your sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us that we are righteous in Christ only because of his righteousness. So, Father, I pray that we would walk in that righteousness and, Lord, receive the rewards that you tell us that we can have. Let us delight ourselves in you, O Lord. Put that desire within our hearts that we would delight in you each and every day, admiring you, standing in awe of you, finding our fulfillment and joy in you. Father, I pray that this congregation would be a beacon of righteousness. And Lord, that it would be a righteousness that stands out on display as we let our light shine before men and that they may be drawn unto you. Father, I pray for that one that may be here that does not know Jesus Christ. Lord, would you open his eyes, spiritual eyes of their heart, Lord, to see who they are now and what they will become when they place their trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would grant them repentance and, Father, that they would come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, change them forever. And all these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.